Welcome to this episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today, I'm honoured to chat with David Jeffrey, who is a cardiac arrest survivor. David is also a highly qualified physicist, having worked at CERN in Switzerland, an IT professional, musician, dedicated sportsman, author, CFR, and very recently, a lifesaver. An amazing CV, but I imagine the highlight must be what you achieved last week, David. Would that be so? <laughs> yeah, um, I think you could have bigged me up a little bit more than that, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was all pales into insignificance, I think, compared with what happened last week. It's quite an achievement, bearing in mind your own event. The ultimate payback, some might say. How did you come to be in a position to do so? Yeah, it, it started... Um, while I was lying in Bart's recovery after my cardiac arrest, I th- there was an idea of I wanted to give something back, which sounds a bit cliched. And I'd looked at hospital voluntary work, and that didn't really fit in with my work schedule. And I thought I wanted to do something more practical. Um, so I happened upon the, uh, the concept of the CFR. So I applied to um, my local ambulance service, and it took quite a few attempts before I finally got on the training scheme. But uh, September and October last year, I did the training and I qualified and started as a CFR in October um, 2018. Could you, for those who aren't uh, familiar with the CFR acronym, could you just uh, tell us what that means? So CFR CFR stands for uh, Community First Responder. And we are people who have basic clinical training from a local ambulance service. We have um, basic life support equipment, defibrillator, oxygen, uh, bandages, and almost a first aid kit. And we work alongside the ambulance service personnel for emergencies in the local area. So we help out with emergencies rather than actually replacing paramedics or the other ambulance um, staff. But because we're based in the local area, we can get to incidents sometimes before an ambulance when um, all the ambulances are really busy and make a difference to incidents um, locally and so you were saying sorry you 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 trained up to be one last year i trained to be one last year um it's a sort of baptism of fire two weekends training where there's a lot of practical skills to be learned observation skills how to deal with people how to take a patient history basically how to deal with a scene when you turn up and then you're kicked out to the big bad world with some mentors and you take calls and you go to incidents. Um, and these are 999 incidents that the ambulance service have received at their call centre and you're dispatched to an incident with a mentor. And you have to basically get on with it um, under your under supervision until you're qualified enough to, to cope with those incidents on your own. And then... Once you can do that on your own, you can just sign on whenever you want to and receive jobs from the local ambulance service and off you go and, and, and deal with the patients at their time of need. And what was your starting point there? Did you, did you have any medical background at all or any knowledge? Um, no, I, I had a, uh, by training, as you said earlier, I'm a physicist. Um, I did have desires on becoming a doctor in my 30s because of the family situation. Um, I chickened out a bit. So I really had no skills beyond the St. John's Ambulance first aid course from about three or four years ago. So I learned from the ground up with uh, my local ambulance service. And, and how did you find that? Uh, tough going, I have to say. I mean, I like to think of myself fairly capable, but there's a lot to learn in a weekend. Um, 
CPR DFib drill was done again and then again and again because it's probably the one thing locally you can make a big difference with if you can get early enough to a, a cardiac arrest incident. Um, so that was probably two or three hours uh, on two days at a weekend just doing CPR drill, which sounds a bit funny, but just the, the how you turn up, how you assess the situation, how you deal with it, attach the defibrillator, get everyone to be out of the way when the shock is applied, how to do CPR, how to um, use a ventilating device for the patient with oxygen, how to make sure you can apply that um, properly to the patient. We did that drill in again and again so that when it comes to it for real, we actually know what we're doing. So it was quite tough, the training. And uh, how did you actually find doing CPR? Well, I presume it's on a dummy, but uh, did you have any uh, sort of issues or problems with doing that having been on the receiving end no i think i've got a fairly sanguine sense of humor i suppose there was the initial thought when i was kneeling down for the first time this could me could be me on the floor here and uh someone doing cpr on me uh but once i got going i actually found the practicalities of it were more uh, important to me than thinking about my own experience, though I did quip to the uh, paramedic train at the end, at least now I knew how to give CPR as well as receive it. <laughs> Which is easier. <laughs> Receiving, trust me, yeah. <laughs> you just have to lie there. <laughs> and uh, you just mentioned the paramedic. I believe you didn't get in first time, did you? It, it took me a, a number of attempts. Um, first time around, I think it was about six months after my cardiac arrest, uh, plus or minus a couple of months, where I went for a chat with uh, their SCAS, the South Central Ambulance Service, and their HQ happens to be about two miles from my house conveniently. So I went there and I had a cup of coffee with uh, two paramedics running the CFR scheme. And they were interested in me. They thought I would be a sort of ideal candidate with my sort of background and level of enthusiasm. But they actually thought it was too soon after my cardiac arrest. They were a bit worried about something happening to me. So they said, away and come back in a year's time so literally it was if you're still alive in a year's time please come back (laughs) (laughs) i kid you not so a year went by i applied and then i found uh, there'd been a reorganization in the cfr training so there was a moratorium on taking on new applicants so i had to wait yet another six months uh i think i put an alert in my uh, calendar so uh, six months went by i diligently filled in the form sending off thinking this was going to be easy um, I didn't hear any more. So then I, uh, via email, hassled them and they said, oh, there's a training course coming up. However, it's full. So I thought, yeah, yeah, fallen at the last fence yet again. Um, so I hassled them a bit more and they said, oh, we've had someone drop out. I think this was on Thursday. Can you start, uh, come to the assessment on Sunday morning? So it fantastic. Um, so I went to the assessment, went through the uh, various stages of the assessment. And at the end, they deemed that I was a suitable candidate. And that was it. I was accepted to be on the training course. Excellent. What did you feel like at that time? I was, I was ecstatic. And also, um, I suppose there's a degree of smugness in it, in that the last part of the selection was the sort of obligatory interview with some of your background, bits and pieces, and voluntary work you've done before. And then the big question about why do you want to be a CFR? And I had thought about this beforehand and thought, I really don't want to come across... Um, arrogant or yeah all me 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 so i didn't mention to begin with that i uh, survived a, an out-of-hospital arrest 
but I sort of led my way to it, talking about the fact that uh, the out-of-hospital arrest survival rates were dire and that the ambulance service was at capacity and the only way you could improve it would be by people in the community um, and CFRs and members of the public actually getting stuck in when something happened. And then I said, oh, by the way, I survived an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And then you could have heard a pin drop. It was quite amusing. And what did they say after that? Well, I was grilled for about 10, 15 minutes about what happened to me. They wanted to know all the, all the details of it. So uh, that was quite interesting. Work. At the end of it, they said, well, uh, based on that, you're precisely the sort of person we want as a CFR. So I, I did feel uh, good at the end of that. Yeah, someone with inside experience is invaluable. I mean. As I said before, let, never let it be said that cardiac arrest doesn't open doors for you. <laughs> yes, normally downwards on six foot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, always normally the one being screwed down on top of you before they bury you. Yeah. <laughs> so how long have you been uh, a CFR for now? And what's it been like since you qualified? It's coming up to six months now. Um, it's been good fun. I would say running uh, essentially shifts on your own is a baptism of fire to begin with because though you've done all the training, um, you've been mentored by someone. The first time you're put on the spot on your own to make a patient assessment and make clinical decisions, it's quite nerve-wracking and you are paranoid about getting things wrong. Um, You want to do the best for the patient and the whole thing about do no harm is really in your mind. So the first month or so... um, was quite quite tricky and then after that it's got better i still have the odd call where i think afterwards i could have done things better i could have taken a history better but i feel i'm much more relaxed going to a situation now talking to people with the old people or children um it's slick is not quite the right word but i i sort of can slide into the role and i feel that when i turn up now i'm not so nervous and it uh it not so much goes like clockwork but it goes as it should do is there any sort of um, legal protection for you guys? Should you mess up, you know, because of your inexperience? I mean, I know if you attend someone who's in cardiac arrest, you can't make things any worse because, you know, the person is clinically dead. Um, but if someone's got a, I don't, I don't know, some other sort of uh, injury that possibly doing something to them could put them in a worse position, have you got any protection? We are covered by the sort of liability of the ambulance service, so they would carry the can if anything were to happen. The clinical skills we've been trained, got from training, and the interventions we can make are fairly limited. So you would have to work outside your remit, really, I think, to do any danger, uh, to do any damage to anybody. Um, but there is that in the back of your mind that you have to be very careful. And then there's the normal uh, child and vulnerable uh, people um, sort of protection and, and legalities that you have to be very careful about how you conduct yourself with people. Um, because you know, these people will let you into their lives at their most vulnerable time, and you have to make sure that you conduct yourself properly and, and accord, you know, accordingly. So it is quite nerve-wracking at times where you think, I really don't want to do any harm now and I've had a few calls recently where I have been literally stumped. But that being the case, I can ring the clinical support at SCAS, uh, but put in contact with a paramedic or a nurse or a doctor, and they can talk me through anything that I'm unsure about. So there is a backup system in place. So you, you, you shouldn't get into a situation where you make silly mistakes. 
So how many cardiac arrests have you managed to uh, or have you attended to so far? Uh, including mine. <laughs> uh, it's two or three if you include mine. But I've, I've actually attended, as a CFR, I've attended two cardiac arrests. And you've got a, a 50% success rate, I believe. <laughs> so far, I've got 50% batting average, yeah. Which is excellent, I would say, uh, from my from my very basic knowledge of uh, the success rate. Well, not my basic knowledge, actually. Well, I mean, bearing in mind that only 8% of us actually survive, uh, 50% is bloody good, actually. And I, I know you were, you were talking to a, a colleague uh, just recently about this uh, could you uh, tell us more about that? Yeah, I was at a, an incident um, uh, completely unrelated to cardiac things that, that went fine, and then the patient was transported to hospital. And I was just chatting with one of the um, paramedics about uh, cardiac issues, and he, he I discussed my own history with him, which he was quite surprised that I was, I was up and walking about and fully functioning. And he said, yeah, I think he'd attended 15 cardiac arrests in his time as a paramedic. He'd resuscitated three, but none of them had survived. Um, so his view was he was fairly sanguine of the, the survivability of an out-of-hospital arrest. I can imagine, yeah. That must be quite quite um, not a great experience to go through, uh, not a failure, but a, a bad outcome that many times. Yeah, it's all credit to him, though, to, to keep going, though. Earlier, you mentioned that when you were interviewed for, to become a CV, CFR, you uh, had to tell them that you uh, were a survivor yourself, and then you had to go into uh, what that entailed. Um, do you think you could share that with us now? What, you know, what what was life like just before, and and what happened at your? For, for me, life before uh, seemed pretty good. Uh, I'm an IT professional. I was working in the city in London. Um, I'm married with two children. Uh, I live in Hampshire. Um, life was good um, and normal. A sort of normal family man with a normal job, uh, a few hobbies outside. I was fit and healthy. I'd run a, a couple of midlife crisis marathons, uh, one before I was 50, and then one the following year to prove the first one wasn't a midlife crisis, which I think makes that more of a midlife crisis. Um, I swim, uh, cycle a few other sports so there was nothing uh untoward wrong with me as far as i was concerned i had slightly elevated blood pressure um but it, but nothing that uh, bothered me uh, was really of a concern to anybody and then 7th of july 2016 i went to work as per normal i went for a swim at lunchtime which again wasn't out of the ordinary and i i'm not a great swimmer but i swam 500 meters up and down the pool uh, I remember getting out of the swimming pool, uh, and that's the last thing I remember. Um, but as I found out afterwards, I got out of the swimming pool, wandered around to the side, sat down on a plastic lounger by the side of the pool, and that's where I had a heart attack and then cardiac arrest and collapsed. So as I found out afterwards, it was all very strange. There were no warning signs. I don't remember any pain. Um, I could not tell you what a heart attack feels like. Um, the only pain I remember afterwards was from a cracked sternum and cracked ribs from, from the CPR. Um, but apart from that, when I woke up in Bart's hospital, I felt fine, but just rather perturbed by, you know, someone explained to me what had happened to me. It just seemed rather surreal, actually. 
I mean, you're, you're, you're quite unusual in that you haven't actually mentioned it yet, but you, most, most um, survivors only can recall their experience through the party uh, telling of it, basically, um, from what other people have told them happened. But for you, you can actually watch your own cardiac arrest, you watch your own demise, because um, it was captured on CCTV, wasn't it? Yes, the pool I had, uh, was swimming at, had CCTV. So the whole incident from me getting out of the swimming pool, uh, sitting on the lounger, cardiac arrest, CPR, defibrillator shock, resuscitation and paramedics arriving, is all captured in colour. Um, so it's rather bizarre that I'm one of the few people in the world who's actually watched himself uh, of cardiac arrest and seven minutes of clinical death followed by resuscitation. I'm not sure I would recommend that many people uh, watching their own demise. I, I uh, have a fairly strong constitution, so I find it quite interesting to watch the footage. But I think for a lot of people, they'd find it incredibly disturbing. But I think it's really quite interesting watching the whole incident unfold. Um, and there are, every time I watch it, there are new aspects of the incident that I notice. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure it's for the faint-hearted, if you excuse the pun. <laughs> well, I, I know. I, I mean, I, I've watched, um, the, I'm sure you've seen Chris Solomon's on the Helicopter Heroes and is quite a, uh, a well-known episode that's on uh, YouTube. Um, and I remember watching that probably about a year after my cardiac arrest and I, I couldn't stomach watching that, uh, even though it was someone else and I knew there was a good outcome because uh, I'd met him before that. Um, but just watching my own one, I don't think I well, could do I, that. I watched it about two weeks after the arrest, actually. I was in Barts for a week, got sent home. Yet. And then I, I find it very hard to, to believe that I did this now, but I went up to London on the train on my own um, and I went to London Ambulance HQ near Waterloo and they had the footage and there was the para chief paramedic who turned up, uh, advanced paramedic, and there were a couple of the PR people and there was a box of tissues on the desk in front of me and they were saying you can stop the footage at any time um, if you find it too upsetting or disturbing. And at the end of it, they were giggling because the only thing I found disturbing was how fat I looked in a pair of swimming trucks. <laughs> <laughs> we were looking at this thing thinking, you've got to lose some weight, Jeffrey. That's not a good look. <laughs> Going back to your the, the actual event, you said you had uh, seven minutes of uh, downtime and you, you received CPR and uh, a few broken ribs. That was down to uh, a rather strapping uh, lad at the gym, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Alex was my saviour, who uh, I'm fairly uh, big and strong, but he's about twice the size of me, so... He was lucky he was on scene. He really made a mess of my chest. But consequently, the quality of the CPR that he gave was fantastic. So I'm here to tell the tale. So how else did it unfold after he, he came on the scene? He wasn't there first. No, of all, was I, he? I collapsed and um, a few people rushed up. And I had what's called agonal respiration, where this is a brainstem reflex to low oxygen in your blood. So your heart stopped. If there's no blood being circulated, the oxygen level in your brain and brainstem will drop. And you can have a response called agonal breathing or agonal respiration. So in my case, it looked like I was breathing. So my chest was moving rapidly and I was gurgling. And I had a left arm myoclonus, which is a rapid shaking my left arm. So... The, the, this being observed was mistaken for me having a fit. So uh, the 
start, the people who, who rushed to me thought I was having a fit. Then Alex had seen what's going on in the CCTV and rushed in. And I was put in the recovery position, which is quite sensible because it looked like I was having a fit. Um, I got off the lounge and rolled into recovery position on the ground. And then it was realized that I wasn't breathing and I was going a lovely shade of uh, blue. Um, so that's when I was rolled back onto my back and CPR um, commenced. So it's one of those things, when you watch the, the, the CCTV now afterwards, you can almost scream at it going, well, you better start CPR. But at the time, it was eminently reasonable what everyone was doing because if you hadn't seen agonal respiration, you'd have no idea um, that's what it was. And you would have said, oh, he's just having a fit. Don't worry about it. But did they um, know any of your sort of uh, history or health history? Presumably you filled in a parkey form when you joined the gym. And do you think they would have bothered looking that up quickly to see if... I don't think... I think the panic was such that they didn't bother with any of that. Because um, I do, want, do wonder about those parkey forms, whether they are any good in that sort of... that scenario. I think they... In theory, they are. I think the realities are, the, with an incident like that, there's such panic and uh, people being astounded by what's happened that it's probably the last thing in their minds to, to go and check one of those forms. I mean, in that situation, it, you just want to get an ambulance, uh, get a defibrillator on the, the patient and get the ambulance as soon as possible. They had, they had a defib there at the gym? They were very lucky. They had a defib at the gym and they are trained regularly. So my hat's off to the staff at the, the swimming pool stroke gym. They knew what they were doing. Um, it, and it was a, a life pack AED, uh, uh, a, a, a defib. So they're like all of them. They talk you through it. So they put the pads on me. It analyzed the rhythm, suggested a shock, got everyone out of the way, one shock. Uh, and that managed to restart my heart. Oh, so that, that's good that you're back so quickly, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. So the, it, it, it was good. I was back so quickly. I mean, one shock. Um, they start recommence CPR, but then I started breathing, um, and everything was fine. And funnily enough, I actually then sat up just at the moment the paramedics arrived with all their gear, and then they didn't believe that I'd been in cardiac arrest a few minutes beforehand because I was sitting up and talking to them. So they took a bit of convincing that uh, what had occurred had actually occurred. Did they have a, uh, um, I don't know, an emergency doctor with them at all? I mean, because what, what would be the decision? Or do you know what the decision is? Because quite often patients are put back into uh, or sedated or into an induced coma after a cardiac arrest. They decided in my case, I, th I think in, generally if you turn up, they're normally someone's doing CPR, they'll shock them. And then once you restart the heart, the heart is... Uh, doesn't beat that efficiently, so you're um, not conscious at that point. So they'll now think for um, your uh, survival and maintaining um, uh, sort of integrity of your organs, they put you in a sort of an induced coma, sedate you and intubate you, and then cart you off to hospital. But in my case, because I was sitting up and I was actually arguing with them, apparently I wanted to have a shower and go back to work. Um, they decided there was no merit in sedating me, that I was now fully conscious and uh, my heart was beating and, uh, and I was you know, self-ventilating. They couldn't see any merit in sedating or cooling me. Um, but it was the, the advanced paramedic who made that decision because I think there were two ambulance crews turned up, two separate ambulance crews, and then one advanced paramedic in a rapid response vehicle. Um, and I caused chaos in central London, traffic chaos. I feel quite pleased about that. Three-mile tailback all around the Bank of England, courtesy of me. <laughs> you actually, um, 
just a little plug for the life after cardiac arrest uh, book writings from southern cardiac arrest uk volume one you've got a, a couple of pieces in that and and one's entitled seven minutes and it starts off uh which i i think i might read actually um if you don't mind oh, far far away seven minutes of my life are missing all is black all is silent there is no consciousness no awareness, no realisation of unconsciousness. It is silent, amorphous, a world without verbs or adjectives. None are possible. They don't exist, neither do I. That's incredibly powerful stuff, David. And uh, is, is that your memory of being in that, uh, that state between life and death? Yeah, you, you, you uh, brought a lot to my throat there, reading back my words to me. Um, Yes, when I wrote that, I wanted to try and capture the first bit, the chaos that I perceived uh, over the event, in that I only have snippets of memory. And it's the only way I could describe it as if I just wasn't here for seven minutes. Um, it didn't exist. You can't say I was unconscious or I, I'd been in pain or I wasn't in pain. It was literally, I wasn't there. And I tried to capture that in those, in those words, in the, you know, the first few sentences of that article that I wrote. I think I did it quite well, but it, it, it's hard to put into words that feeling, but it was just uh, bizarre. I, I can't really describe, uh, and I realise I'm rambling, I can't really describe it, but it's the, the best I could come up with to describe the chaos and the fact that I was just in a, just not here for seven minutes. I know exactly what you meant, and I, I think you've captured it beautifully. And it, it's the feeling you have before that you even existed as a baby, isn't it? Really? I mean, well, we know we're technically we're clinically dead, and I'm I'm not of the sort of person that, that I believe in any afterlife or anything. Like I went somewhere and then I came back. I just wasn't here, and it's a bizarre feeling. And even now, when I think about it, I cannot comprehend. What happened to me? I know I was in cardiac arrest for seven minutes, but during that seven minutes, I literally wasn't here. And I have the same feeling, and I I was slightly longer. And I think I don't know what that's one of the big bugbears with me because my I was unwitnessed, had an unwitnessed arrest, and uh, I just don't know what happened that time while I was laying there. Uh, to to all intents purposes, I could have been abducted by aliens for all I know, but. Uh, I don't think I was, but um, there is a period of your life that, as you put it, seven minutes of my life are missing. It, it, it is exactly that. I think if I hadn't seen the CCTV footage, I would be infinitely frustrated because I wouldn't have known what had gone on. Someone could have told me, uh, or Alex and the other people at the gym could have recounted to me, but it would have just been not even secondhand, a bit thirdhand, the whole thing, but... For me, because I watched it, I know, but it's still, like you, it's this very bizarre period of my life where we, we just weren't there. After you were carted off to the hospital, what, what happened there? Um, I got taken into the catheter lab. Um, and I'm not sure I'm unusual in the group. I think there's probably more idiopathic than people with MIs. I could be wrong, but I, I'd had a small heart attack. Um, and we can come on to the reason for that in a bit. Um, but I got taken to the catheter lab where basically uh, they, I was sedated and a catheter put up, I think, my femoral vein 
or it might have been a radio, it might have got in my wrist, I can't remember. Um, and then on a real-time x-ray camera, they checked out the arteries of my heart and they found they're all in fairly good nick for a man my age. And there was one, the left circumflex, which was narrowed, but not blocked, but they think that's the one that was blocked, so they put a stent in it. And that feed, that artery feeds the bottom left-hand side of my heart, and that's where there was a damage to a heart muscle from a heart attack. And it was a, a tiny MI, nothing of any significance, but I think, as Tom said, it's a killer because... A heart attack in that region will flip your heart into ventricular fibrillation um, and then you've had your chips unless someone's got a defib on hand. So I had that um, to the cath lab. Again, the doctors were scratching their heads a bit because I didn't present uh, as a sort of normal patient. Uh, someone of my age, I was fit and healthy. The arteries were all okay, so they did scratch their heads about quite why I was there, but I'd had an MI and cardiac arrest, so they, they dealt with it. Um, I then got taken to the um, cardiac HDU, and it's probably, I think the event happened about one o'clock, and I remember probably half past four or five o'clock coming to in a bed with my son uh, sitting in a chair next to me, um, my chest with the ECG electrodes on it going to a machine that kept beeping, and then a couple of guys in green appeared, I think one of the people who'd done the, um, uh, been in the catalog with me, and explained what, what happened to me. Now... I'd been pumped full of morphine for pain and midazolam um, to relax me. So I was actually quite happy. Whatever they told me, I thought was fantastic. I mean, if it was my drug of choice, I'd take morphine and midazolam every time. But <laughs> lying in hospital bed, I was quite happy with it. This whole thing had got on. I was nice and comfortable. Um, I think it was the day after that, it finally hit me what the hell had happened to me. And what did that do to you when, when, you did, when it did hit home? I was... Astounded is too weak a word. Um, dumbfounded that someone fit and healthy like me, uh, slightly overweight, but uh, yeah, that was probably the only thing working against me, how this had happened to me, and then how I'd actually survived. Um, and being the sort of person I am, I looked up um, online the survival rates and I realized how lucky I was as how lucky all of us uh, in the group are um, and I was just poleaxed is probably the best way to describe me I just couldn't function for a day um, it was just so profound what had happened to me that I couldn't think straight is the best way of describing it what else happened while you're in hospital? Did you have any further follow-up tests? I had uh, I had low blood potassium, which turns out to be a bit of a red herring. They were worried that I might have um, a thing called hyperaldosteronism. I'm not sure I've pronounced that correctly. It was to do with benign kidney tumours that mess up um, the sodium and potassium in your blood. But I think it was probably just post-arrest. My physiology was messed up, and that's why I ended up with low blood potassium. But I did get sent into an MRI scanner for checking my cardiac function, and they could see uh, looking for the damage to the heart muscle from the MI. And I think that was probably a couple of days post-arrest, and I found that frightening. Um, still wired up to, to an ECG and a portable defibrillator being put into the sort of tube inside the MRI scanner, and then it was about 90 minutes inside there having to breathe in, hold my breath to order in a noisy, hot environment. I found that quite uh, disturbing, uh, not something I wanted to repeat. And I thought, oh, well, I've only got to do this once in my life. It's over and done with. Uh, and then, I thought, of course, I've done it three more times since then. 
<laughs> it's not, not something I would recommend to anybody in MRI scanner. Uh, but if you've got to do it, you have to do it. Um, then I was back on the ward. I was given standard cocktail of drugs for uh, an MI patient, uh, which involved 10 milligrams of bisoprolol, um, beta blockers that I've come to loathe. Um, and in my case, that slowed my heart down to about 30 beats a minute. So whenever I went to sleep, uh, my heart rate would drop. It would set off the cardiac arrest alarm on the monitor attached to my bed. So I had nurses running for me every 10 minutes um, until they realized that this was actually what was going on. Then they reduced the dose and I was fine. And I did have one night after the, when I was still on the 10 milligram dose, when my heartbeat was very erratic. Um, I have an arrhythmia, uh, still have an arrhythmia now, where I have ectopic beats, extra beats, and I'll have a compensatory pause. Um, so I don't often have a regular heartbeat. And I remember sitting in the bed thinking, okay, this is it. I'm not going to make it out of here. So that was uh, a quite a profound evening. And, of course, I was still there the next morning when I woke up. So. <laughs> did, you, did you fear about going to sleep? No, I night? sat in a chair. I was into the music. I thought, if I'm going to die, I might as well enjoy myself. So I listened to a few of my favorite tracks. And I thought, well, okay, this is going to happen. It's going to happen. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, saying goodbye to my family, I didn't let on which I what I thought was going to happen to me. But saying goodbye to my um, wife and son and daughter was particularly hard. Um, and trying to be honest, I remember my daughter asking me that I was going to be okay, and I said I just don't, I, I can't say. I didn't want to lie, but I also didn't want to give away um, what I thought was going to happen to me. But that was particularly hard, actually, quite poignant. How was it all on on your wife and your family? Well. I thought I had the worst of it, but I think about it now, it must have been horrendous because I think if position were reversed, I would find it very difficult to, to cope with my wife or, or my children in a hospital situation like that. I think, unlike uh, Tracy, where she witnessed it and had to perform CPR, at least for my wife, she was spared that. But she had to get on a train to London from Salisbury, not knowing whether I was alive or dead just known, known I'd been taken to hospital, uh, rushed to hospital, and she didn't know whether I was dead or not. So it must have been quite tough for her. Indeed, indeed. And uh, how long were you in hospital, and, and uh, when did you get discharged? I spent a week in Barts, um, most of the time wired up to uh, monitor by the bed. Um, and I was quite... It's one of those bizarre things. There's a small ward of Barts where I was next to a couple of guys who needed quadruple bypass operations and someone else who um, needed some cardiac surgery. So in a sense, I was the probably the most illest of the people, but uh, they looked far iller than me. Um, so I was up sort of wandering around. Um, but because I was wired up for the monitor, I could only go about a metre from the bed, so I was like a caged animal pacing up and down. So in the end, I used to disconnect myself from the monitor, go to the loo and have a shower and come back. And it panicked the nurses the first time, and then they were okay with it. They knew that I wasn't going to um, keel over and die on their watch. So probably the last couple of days in Barts, was that was being monitored, was a bit pointless. And then I went through the great uh, hospital discharge where you've been the centre of attention for a week. All the doctors are making sure you survive and checking your medication and checking on you and MRI scans and ECGs, etc. And then you get booted out of the hospital at 7 o'clock in the evening with a carrier bag full of medication and told to go home. <laughs> it's a bit of an anti-climax, actually, as I'm sure you found. Well, exactly. And uh, that's partly the reason why uh, Sudden Cardiac Arrest UK exists, really. And I think 
You mentioned uh, your wife the, on her journey up to you, not knowing whether you're alive or dead. And I think that's probably where it hits home uh, on the partners and family is, is when we get discharged because we've gone from the, the 24-7 care with all of the nurses and doctors at hand and being plugged into monitors and what have you. And then you're discharged and after having all of the uh, 24-7 care with doctors and nurses looking after you constantly, you're discharged, as you said, with a bag of pills or whatever, and it all rests on your partner and your your family. And I think that's the time when they feel the biggest burden, really. How, how did your wife and family cope with you when you came home? Well, my uh, daughter was there for... Uh, when I was discharged, my son that time was at university, so he's, he wasn't living home. My daughter wasn't living home either, but they came back with me uh, on the train. And it was rather strange coming into the house. And I, of course, had the paranoia at that point that the whole thing was going to happen again. And I think it was the same for my wife and daughter, but it was unspoken, so there was a little bit of tension. Um, uh, I didn't want people to worry about me, but they were worried about me. Um, and any time I yawned or gasped because my chest really hurt from the CPI, it felt like I'd been hit in the chest with a sledgehammer. Uh, there was sudden paranoia that I was having a, uh, another heart attack or something. So it took a while for everyone to, to learn how to live with each other with the, the new uh, regime, for whatever better description. But uh, it probably about a week or a couple of weeks to settle down. Um, like you said, big, coming home with a bag of pills, like I basically, you're told to go and see your GP. And I, it must have been the same for you. I went to see my GP, and it was just a look of incredulity on his face. I think twofold. One was they see very few um, cardiac arrest survivors. And I think it's only probably the last maybe five, ten years because of public access defibrillators that they're more and more of surviving. And the second thing is he took a look at me and thought, well, there's nothing wrong with you. You just... Um, the swing of the lead, mate. You, you, this never happened to you until he read the discharge letter from Barts, and there was a slight change of opinion. But he didn't know what to do with me. So there was a little bit of paranoia when I came back home. Okay, I've seen the GP, but he doesn't know quite what to do or tell me what to do. No one seems to know I'm I'm back home. Um, and then you realise the emergency care is fantastic at the hospitals, but once you're chucked out, they've got more new emergency people to worry about, and there is no one to pick up the pieces as you say and hence you started this group of which myself and a lot of people are really grateful um and i got offered cardiac rehab because i had an mi so i got referred to a cardiac rehab team at winchester hospital and that was quite interesting there were two nurses there who i got along with really well and they looked at me they look at my uh, sort of history and they basically left me to my own devices it's sort of an exercise class designed for people who've had heart attacks who probably had let themselves go for want of a better description so they hadn't done any exercise. Um, so there was sort of an introductory uh, aerobics class for them for want of a better description. So for me, having been fairly fit and healthy, they just let me um, get on with it for, uh, it was two sessions a week. Um, but I have to say my arrogance uh, was uh, <laughs> got the better of me because I thought, well, I'm fit and healthy. This will be easy. But I found it remarkably difficult, actually. I think that was a combination of 
my chest hurting and the effects of the beta blockers blockers not letting my heart speed up. So uh, after the first couple of sessions, I thought this maybe this isn't going to be as easy as I thought. Uh, but it was good having done the cardiac rehab. I was going to ask that, how you actually found it, uh, whether it was a, a being a fit and healthy guy beforehand, whether you actually benefited from it. And did, did, the, um, did it aid you in a psychological uh, way? Did it boost your confidence doing it? It did because I knew the first bit of exercise post-arrest was going to be very difficult for me. And of course, there were two nurses, cardiac nurses running the class and they had a defibrillator and it was at Winchester Hospital. So I thought, if anything goes wrong, I'm in a, in a good place. Um, so psychologically, it was good. However, raising my heartbeat to 100 beats a minute or so was difficult every time. Um, and as I've learned uh, that time, I did have chest pain. And of course, not knowing what MI feels like, there was some paranoia on my part, but I had a lot of mechanical pain, as it turns out, from the cracked sternum and uh, my left-hand side ribs have cracked. And that's even three and a bit years on, I still have chest pain from time to time. Um, so I've learned to recognize that now. But at, at the time when I did the cardiac rehab, every twinge, every ache um, uh, was paranoia on my part. But I'm really glad I did the rehab. It, it really did help. And by the end of the course, I felt I had some of my fitness back. And I was a lot more confident doing stuff. Indeed, indeed. Um, so how has your, your recovery gone on from there? Well, I would like to say I'm back to normal. I have um, I was prescribed a series of blood pressure control medications and continued with bisoprolol beta blocker, but on a lower dose. And I would say the bisoprolol is probably the worst one because it slows my heart down, uh, makes me dopey at times. And stops my heart speeding up. So if I go for a swim or out on the bicycle, it would instead of thirty seconds to warm up, it might take me five minutes to get my heart um, beating quick enough to do the exercise I want. So that that affected me um, from that respect. But a couple of months afterwards, I was essentially back to normal. And I don't. It's hard to tell whether I've got a brain injury. I think. All of us who had cardiac arrest have got some effect on our brain. I lost a few memories. Sometimes I think my short-term memory maybe is not as quite as sharp as it was. But then again, I'm 56. Maybe it's just the effects of aging. But at all, all intents and purposes, back to normal, apart from um, arrhythmia, uh, which then was diagnosed as atrial fibrillation. So I went through treatment um, one first thing was a, a cardioversion, which is essentially a defibrillator shock applied to your heart in synchronization with the heart to, to restart it again and stop the AF. And that only worked temporarily. And then I had cardiac surgery a year ago, which was another catheter put up my femoral vein. But they basically killed the errant cells at the top of my heart, causing the uh, atrial fibrillation. And the last time I had an ECG, that had been cured. Um, it's just uh, life is normal. I've just had these things along the way and I just had to deal with them. But life is pretty much as it was before the arrest. Uh, that's absolutely great to hear. And um, I think you're right about the uh, the brain injury aspect of a cardiac arrest. And I think I've, I've read sev several places that you only need to be down for maybe a minute or two for brain cells to start dying off. And um, you were down for seven minutes, you said. So 
it's almost certainly that you will have had some impact. But the the more uh, science understands about the brain, the more they understand that it can actually regenerate some of the uh, the brain cells, and uh, there is a certain amount of neuroplasticity, and we can sort of rebuild parts of our brain. I don't think, depending on how serious it is, um, parts can't be. But I've also seen about um, recent studies showing that cardiac arrest patients or survivors, um, the the hippocampus is quite often affected first. um, And that that accounts for a lot of the um, sort of things to do with speech and memory and the executive function and things like that. The things that we see in the group um, reasonably often and uh, fatigue as well. I think that's probably one of the biggest uh, problems, but certainly for me, but I see a lot of people, and a lot of uh, people I see attribute that to um, the beta blockers, which it, it is true. When I started taking beta blockers, my uh, resting heart rate dropped by about 10 beats within 10 days. I think I think I was losing a beat per day. Uh, and that does slow you down, definitely. But I didn't take uh, beta blockers for a over two years after my cardiac arrest, so I know the fatigue was already in place before taking them. What about you? I had fatigue afterwards. It's hard to say uh, whether it was beta blocker related or the arrest. I stopped. Uh, I stopped and restarted beta blockers twice um, while they were checking out the uh, low blood potassium, and I know when I restart them how horrible they make me feel. And I realized when I was in hospital thinking I was going to die with a slow erratic heartbeat, that was actually the effect of the beta blockers rather than anything else, because I've experienced that um, twice more. And at the moment, I don't take beta blockers because I had a different medication after the cardiac ablation, and I hope I don't have to take them again. Um, But the the fatigue was there. I, I don't know whether it's arrogance on my part to say I didn't really get a brain injury. I'm sure, like you said, there's something went on it. I think the executive function is intact. I lost memories of people uh, and events for the last four or five years. And of course, people ask me, you know, what were they? I said, well, I've got no idea because I forgot them, which sounds a bit trivial. But a few things have come back, but I don't know what it is I've forgotten. But I do have areas which it's almost like it's grey or a fog where I know there's something there, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Um, and I, every now and then I would get a little bit tongue twisted and I just stop myself and then I start speaking again and everything's fine. But that's the only real things I notice. And I don't know whether these things are uh, cardiac arrest related or whether they're just facets of aging. Um, it's hard to tell, but I think, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not the, definitely not the person I was beforehand. Um, and that's not just memory wise, but I, I think I got away with it fairly lightly. Um, of which I'm very, very thankful, but I'm not conscious of the people who didn't get away so lightly. And do, do, do you found that you've, um, you, you say you weren't the person that you were before. Have you, have you come to reconcile yourself with that? No, because I, it's a hard one because to begin with, I wanted to get back to who I was and you realise that's impossible. Um, but the problem we also would think about was that I can't tell you what's different about me from before my arrest. I just know I'm not the same person, and I just can't quantify it. So if I could quantify it, I might say, well, I could do this and I'd get back to who I was beforehand. But I know that old version of me literally died on 
July 7th, 2016. And there's a new version of me here. But I'm much the same person, which is <laughs> self-contradictory there. But that's the best way I can describe it. I'm just not who I was. Is, is it a psychological change? Is it a, a, a different purpose in no, life it's now? Psycho- it's probably psychological change. Purpose in life, yeah, I think I've got a slightly different outlook on life now. And also in light of the CFR, uh, I feel I have a different purpose now. Um, and uh, what I want to do with the rest of my life is different from what I wanted to do with it, say, 10 years ago. Um, the cardiac arrest has changed me in that respect. Um, but I really can't put my finger on it about what's different about me. I mean, to all, to all intents and purposes, the people who know me, I'm exactly the same person. I mean, it is almost like a, uh invisible uh, no, event or disability to people who don't know what happened to you because most survivors, they will look pretty much the same as they did before. But it has had a deep, deep effect. It, as you said, it, even though you're not that dissimilar to how you were before, it, it has affected you quite deeply. Which is- yeah, that's a profound effect to me. I, I've never been one for um, loud places and noise and lots and lots of people, even though I do like uh, music and I play music. I've never been one for loud bars or loud pubs or things. But I do find those things very difficult now. A restaurant that's very noisy, I find quite difficult. And sometimes social situations where there's lots of people uh, with noisy and people vying for my attention, I do find that difficult. And I I think you have have commented you felt the same thing. And I don't know whether that's cardiac arrest related. I think it probably is. And so there are certain situations I just need five minutes, peace and quiet and space, which is quite difficult for other people um, to understand because all intents and purposes, you just look like who you were before. They don't realize that you just need this um, peace and quiet and space every now and then. Yes, I think that's the uh, sort of just basically the the brain having to work over time to process all the the signals coming in and uh, it's just not as fast as it used to be. And and I'm pretty sure the the brain is the uh, highest user of energy within the body. I think that's true. and yeah, and it just runs out of energy far quicker than it used to do. That it's certainly true, true within me that I find I, myself um, I'm not only physically drained but mentally drained a lot quicker than I used to be. I've had a few occasions. I did some filming with the British Heart Foundation, um, which ended up as one of their sort of YouTube promotional videos, where they, to camera, got me to talk through yeah, the events of the day of my cardiac arrest. And probably for about an hour after they finished the film, they did it at my house. I just sat in the armchair in my office and I was physically drained. I couldn't talk to anybody. I found that very, very draining where that wouldn't have happened before, I don't think. Did you, yeah, I was going to come on to that British Heart Foundation advert, so thank you for bringing it up. So that's just another part of you uh, giving back. You've, you've had a, quite a history of uh, giving back, really, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, but I've got, I've got an ego problem. I've just got to keep doing this so it's all me, me, me. Um, Alex, the chap who saved me, I uh, recommended him to the British Heart Foundation. and They gave him an award, a Lifesaver Award. And as part of that, there was a presentation at the British Heart Foundation headquarters in uh, 2017, I think. Yeah, 2017. And I got stitched up a little bit. They said, would you mind saying a few words? It's going to be four or five people. And fortunately, I thought about this beforehand. I thought maybe there's going to be a few more than 
four or five people. So I'd mentally run through a little speech in my head of how I would introduce myself and talk about what happened to me and talk about Alex, etc. Um, which was quite fortunate because when I turned up, there were about 200 people at British Heart Foundation and they filmed the event and I think they showed it to people in some of their other offices. So I was put on the spot. But I, I made the crowd laugh. I also made them uh, cry as well. I'm sure that's a good thing. Um, but as part of that, the British Heart Foundation then asked if I would help them with uh, sort of publicity and trying to raise awareness, which I agreed to. Um, so part of that was they wanted to do a film about me and Alex to show uh, what if you have early intervention in a cardiac arrest, you can have a really good outcome. Um, they wanted to sort of use me as the, well, really Alex is the poster boy for that. I mean, it's not the, the story for that shouldn't be about me. It should be about Alex and what he did. And then I, a few photographs and a few emails and, and publicity things on the British Heart Foundation um, uh, to sort of help them out when they've had a, a campaign. And then last year I did some radio interviews for them for Restart a Heart Day. So there's me and Alex and a British Heart Foundation nurse in a studio in London talking to various radio stations around the UK, which was uh, taxing and also amusing as well. And you've, you've contributed a, a couple of uh, entries for the, the Southern Cardiac Arrest UK blog, and um, they've been very helpful for other um, survivors, I know, because people have commented to me, and you're an excellent writer, and uh, how did you find in actually writing about your own demise? I, I found it... Um... Say remarkably easy is not the right word. I found it straightforward and actually quite enjoyable. And I found crafting the words, uh, I really enjoyed it. And I find that's quite strange because I hated, absolutely hated English at school. I hated my English teacher and the feeling was mutual. So now, yeah, 40 years on, I'm quite surprised that I quite enjoy putting the prose together. But it's been quite enjoyable. And I've tried to write them not so much about me, but so that, but they are about my story, but so that someone else could read them and learn something for it and, and, and it be of help to them, if that makes any sense. I didn't want it to be some big ego trip, but I, I tried to pitch the articles to some of them, especially the one about the ablation. They go, oh, right, okay, that's what David went through. I'm going to go through the same thing. It's, it's not such a big deal, or I need to think about this aspect or whatever. But uh, in, in short answer to your question, I really enjoyed writing them. Did, did you find they helped you at all in your recovery? Yeah, the first one, the seven minutes really did. I felt when I finished that, I was really quite pleased with the way that put together because it had the, the first part was sort of chaos of the whole situation. And then the second half was a description of what happened and then a thank you to everybody at the end. And I found that, found that very therapeutic. Um, and the CFR one, I really enjoyed writing as well because... I thought I can try and make this amusing and upbeat, and it's about reality. So I found them all quite therapeutic. I mean, there there is a uh, I don't know if you're aware there there is actually a therapy called expressive writing where where you um, you write about a traumatic experience three times uh, or daily, uh, three or four times it is for just a very short amount of time, and it is. Uh, believed to have very good results in terms of uh, reducing stress from um, from PTSD and things like that regard, relating to the, the trauma of the event. So I, I, and 
I've had so many people actually say when they've actually done a, done a blog post for me that they found it very uh, therapeutic. Like, like yeah, there's a couple of other people I've spoken to who've done the, the blog post for you and said that, uh, like you're saying, that it's really therapeutic. Um, I would, well, I recommend it to anybody, and I think I wouldn't class myself as a great writer. As I said, I hated English at school. Um, but it's quite enjoyable crafting the words, so I'd recommend it to anybody who's struggling. Just try and put a few words down on paper, and even if you don't have to show them to anybody, just getting them down on paper, I think, is quite beneficial. Well, exactly. That that, that expressive writing is is for you. You don't have to show it to anyone. You can screw it up and throw it away straight away if you like. Um, I don't say um, you've got to show it to anyone. No therapist involved or anything like that. It's a very quick and easy way of. Uh, helping you overcome some trauma, for, for some people anyway. To continue on the theme of writing, the, you also have written a, your own book, which is Long Path to Me. Um, do you want to just give that a little bit of a plug? Because I know you're... Yeah, it's available in all good uh, bookshops. <laughs> I need the income. Um, this was a, a, another, I suppose, a therapeutic thing. I... I dabbled with the odd bit of writing. I did made some stories up for my children when they were younger and, and wrote them down and never went anywhere. And I, I think by virtue of my family history and what I went through, decided I wanted to put it to paper. And to give a bit of background, um, uh, I had a fairly austere upbringing as a child. And then um, in the 80s, late 80s, my mother got breast cancer and then um, she's in long-term remission, but there was a trauma of that. Um, four years after that, my father died very quickly from a bladder tumour. That was 1992. In 1997, my sister died of breast tumour just after giving birth to a baby. So I'd been through a lot of... Trauma is not quite the right word because it wasn't so much I'd suffered from those things, but I, I suffered the effects of the people around me dying. Um, and at that time, I had a young family, and I never really dealt with any of the issues uh, from this. And it was probably about 20 years afterwards. It was just one day I thought, I don't want to feel like this anymore. Because I think it cast, I would say it cast a shadow over my life, actually, the, 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 the family deaths. Um, uh, some dark days at times um, so I decided to see a psychotherapist and I spent about 18 months with a psychotherapist which I found incredibly useful actually uh, to begin with I was a little bit embarrassed about this in that you know men should be able to fix these problems uh, yourself but I realized at the end of it it's actually impossible and that everyone has um, issues that they can't deal with you actually need someone else to help you deal with it so at the end of that process I was a much happier person and also much able, more able to deal with things that life had thrown at me. Even if that means being upset about my sister dying or my dad dying, I still get upset about it. But at least I can feel that now and, and react to it where I couldn't in the past. So I thought I would write a book, first of all, just for myself to get these things down on paper. But then I, I switched the tack and I rewrote the opening in that I wanted it to be a book for other people to read, to see what I had been through um, and how I sort of not cured myself, because I don't need to be cured, but how I learned to deal with things. So I wrote from the point of view of it, trying to be a, a book beneficial to other people. Um, 
and it lists some of the things I went through, some of the sessions with the therapist, which sounds a bit dirty, a bit um, dull, but I try to make it as upbeat as possible. The dealing thing, uh, each chapter dealing with certain aspects of, of my life and what I went through. And then the finale at the end. And then um, about halfway through writing the book, I had my little cardiac incident. So the book was put on hold for a while, but I, I finished it. Um, sometime last year, I was on a train to London. I thought, okay, I've written enough. So I put it together. And as you know from Kindle Publishing, there's a one unit of effort to write a book, and there's another unit of effort to get into a state in which you can actually publish a thing on uh, the Kindle store. So I did all that, um, put the book to- together, and it's it's published and available on Kindle. So if anybody wants to get a copy, um, it's there for them to, to have a read. It's called The Long Path to Me. And you, you have to admire the book cover because it was a photograph I took in the Lake District. Uh, and it has a, uh, obviously the unplanned epilogue, which is my uh, seven minutes story right at the end of the book. Now, I th- I've read your book and uh, it, it's, it really is an excellent read. I haven't, uh, fortunately, I haven't had to experience any of those uh, those traumas or the, the grief that you've gone through um, today anyway. Um, but it, it really... Uh, a real emotional read and uh, I take my hat off to you to, uh, for writing that down. And, well, well, thank you. I, I, I hope it did uh, give you some solace for, for that period in your life. Or no, it, it has, Looking back, uh, I can see what I went through. I, it, it has given me some solace. I think the chapter I wrote about my sister, probably the most powerful bit, and every now and then when I read that, I think that I still get upset by it. Um, but if anybody does read it, they realise I had quite a lot chucked at me over the years, but I think you have to roll with the punches. I think the cardiac arrest shows you that, that you can either wallow in self-pity or you can just pick yourself up and, and get on with it, which I think what all of us are doing on the group. I was going to say, has your previous experience helped you with your recovery from cardiac arrest? And would you say the process of going through the therapy, which probably to a lot of people, it's not something there they'd immediately jump at, um, do, you, do you think that would help them get over their cardiac arrest? I I think it helped me because I've been through all that. It helped me deal with cardiac arrest. I would recommend therapy to anybody. And as I said earlier, it's, I was quite embarrassed when I first went and I didn't want to admit it to anybody. But I think you could unpick things in your subconscious that you didn't realize were there, which are causing limiting behavior. Um can actually improve things great in your life. So I'd recommend it to anybody, actually, and in particular those struggling after cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. And I just uh, might as well say that at this point that if you are listening to this and you are a, a member of the Southern Cardiac Arrest UK group, uh, thanks to SADS UK, you can get um, six free counselling sessions from a, a British uh, association of whatever it is, <laughs> I can't be ACP, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you can't get them through your normal GP and whatever, and we know that the uh, the mental health uh, part of the NHS is is struggling, to say the least, at the moment. Um, so, and and counselling is not something that's offered very often to survivors or even their partners. And as we sort of touched on before, the... Uh, the trauma of seeing someone have a cardiac arrest and having to perform 
CPR on a partner or a loved one is is probably the biggest trauma that anyone might go through within their life. So it wouldn't be surprising that they needed therapy to get over it. Um, anyway, um, probably coming towards the end of this now, David, um, I've got two little things or one little thing is about you, you seem, uh, seem like you're doing pretty well now. Um, so what, what would be your tips for other survivors who have gone through a cardiac arrest to help them get back to not necessarily who they were before, but the, the being accepting of who they are now? Um, oh, that's a good question. I think being able to accept what happened, uh, which sounds a bit trivial, but I think that profound thing of not being able to put into words what you've been through and that might make you cry or that might make you depressed or that might make you sad i think you have to get to the point where that just is what it is and i'm not saying you would stop being sad or stop crying or or stop finding it difficult but i think being able to accept that's just what it is uh, could be quite beneficial um and I think communicating to people around you, it's one of the things I learned in therapy that you, you, I had this thing that people would not understand what happened, how I was feeling, which was trivially true because I never actually told anybody how I was feeling or how I wanted to be treated. Um, so I think unless you can communicate to the people around you what you're feeling, you might be feeling sad, you might be feeling upset, or you might be feeling fine. I think you need to communicate to the people around you then they know how to treat you. And that's your loved ones, your family, your work colleagues, if you go back to work. You eventually go back to work after your cardiac arrest. Just tell them how you're feeling. Maybe at times you're going to feel sad. Maybe at times you just need some peace and quiet. And I'm sure everyone will be understanding and accommodating. I don't think you would be judged because of that. I think everyone would be more than happy to not so much make some accommodations, just to understand you. But you, you, to do that, you've got to tell them how you're feeling. So I would recommend that as well. Could I just? Uh, how did you find speaking with other survivors? <laughs> the first meetup uh, with yourself um, in a pub in London, I found that quite difficult, actually. Um, very good to meet other survivors absolutely fantastic because you realize you're not alone and other people have got far more horrendous stories than than yours and also some amusing stories from various people uh at times i got uh upset i uh, for reasons i can't really understand uh, and again yeah i don't understand them it's just how it how it was uh, but I found that very, very therapeutic to meet up with the other survivors. And in the subsequent meetings I've been to, it's been very, very good. So it's something you'd recommend other survivors uh, check out then, the, a meet-up. We've got one coming up in uh, September in uh, the middle of the country in uh, Barnsdale Hall Hotel in Oakham. I would recommend the meet-up to all survivors and uh, partners my wife came to one of the meetings in london which she found very useful to a to see some of the other survivors and also for some of the talks and the information um, she had a slightly different perspective on things from me but i would recommend the meetup up to everybody uh, and i think there may be some people who would be reticent and think they weren't going to get anything of it out of it but i think you'd be surprised how therapeutic it is meeting other survivors 
Indeed, I totally agree with you. Um, so have you got any last final words before we call this a, a day? Because I, I taken over an hour of your time and I know you're a very, very busy man and um, hopefully you're going to be hearing soon or do you know if you're going to be hearing how your patient has done? Is that something they they let you know or do you have to? I'd, uh, I'd, have, I'd have to try and find out. Um, uh, it's one of the drawbacks of uh, ambulance service work is you tend to, you'll have a flurry of activities, someone's delivered to hospital and you never know anything more afterwards. So if you hear back from a relative or, or someone says thank you, then that's a sort of rarity. But generally, you, you, it's, just, it's a shame. You just sort of work uh, in a vacuum. You do your bit and then you never hear anything more. But we'll find out. I'll see if I can find out. Um, in conclusion, the I suppose the only thing I can say is that it's hats off to you and thanks to everybody in the group for you starting this group and the energy and dedication you put into organizing it because it's an invaluable resource for all cardiac arrest survivors and their families. Um, I don't think we can all thank you enough. Oh, thank you for saying so, David. But uh, I just felt like it was my way of giving back, and, and uh, it's only a small part, really. Yeah. I know you've you've done uh, a huge amount in giving back, and uh, I think it's. I think my last thing to say would be that. I think giving back actually helps people recover. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know it has uh, given me a certain amount of acceptance to what's happened, uh, knowing that you can continue on and, and do some good in the world. No matter how uh, affected you are after your cardiac arrest, I think doing something like this, is a, uh, whatever you could do is a positive contribution. It is beneficial to you. Giving back, I think, even if it's just sending some leaflets to your GP or giving a leaflet to someone I think you'd feel good about yourself by doing that indeed and, and just writing about experience because every every cardiac arrest is pretty much unique and the, the journey afterwards but someone else somewhere will probably have something similar to that and they can pick the bones out of it and get some um, make some sense out of it maybe and uh, help them in their recovery so it's, it's a win-win really I think it, it yeah, I'd just like to say thank you very much for, for joining me on this uh, episode and uh, I really look forward to hearing from you in the future about how that patient did and your uh, your other successes and your journey with through being a CFR. Maybe one day you'll become a paramedic. Thanks very much, David, and uh, have, a, have a good day. <laughs>